Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I'm delighted to host Dr. Emily Grebel, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University and also by pure chance my doctoral advisor. We will be discussing her wonderful second book, Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe, recently published by Oxford University Press. Focusing on the Muslim inhabitants of the Austro-Hungarian Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia, and later Yugoslavia, as they repeatedly adjusted to shifting borders and modern state-building projects between the 1870s and the 1940s, Dr. Grebel shows how Ottoman political, legal, economic, and social legacies shaped post-Ottoman successor states and how ordinary Balkan Muslims understood, negotiated, and reworked the rapidly changing ideological landscapes into which the 19th century had thrown them. The book forcefully argues that modern European constructs of law, national minority, and public education developed in a distinct Christian context. So by recovering, the Balkan Muslims struggled to define the role of Islam in their new nationalizing states and societies the book sheds new light on the historical dynamics of modern citizenship and multiculturalism. It also illuminates Muslims' oft-overlooked agency in the making of modern Europe. Dr. Grebel, welcome to New Books in History, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a real pleasure. As is customary here on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous research led you to write Muslims in the Making of Modern Europe. Your first book dealt with the various ways in which inhabitants of Sarajevo grappled with challenges of living under occupation amidst mass violence of the Second World War. What links these two projects, if anything? 
It's a great question. Um, so as with so many books, uh, when we finish one book, we have lingering questions about things that we weren't able to finish in, in one study and that we want to continue to think about. And for me, a major thread from the first book that I didn't feel was fully resolved and that I didn't feel like I had answered uh, to to sort of to, the, to my own satisfaction, shall we say, shall we say, uh, was this question about sort of how Islam operated in different kinds of European states. And so what I did was, as I finished that book in the summer of 2010, before Sarajevo came out, uh, I went back to some archives and I started to think through sort of where the story went next and how these questions of Islam might have been understood in the post-war period. And as I came across different documents from the post-war period in which people were utilizing uh, Sharia law and discussing sort of the future of madrasas and maktabs, Islamic higher secondary schools, and elementary schools, and also the future of the Wash, the pious endowments, uh, I realized that the story that was missing for me um, was actually much earlier. It wasn't a question of where the story was going next, but how uh, Islam had developed in distinct, uh, Islamic institutions had developed in distinct European contexts in previous eras. And historiographically speaking, you're primarily driven by a desire to integrate Eastern European or Southeast European histories into what one may term mainstream European narratives. Uh, why is such an effort worth our while? So yes, one of my one of my big historiographical desires is that we take seriously the narratives of marginalized communities across Europe, uh, including Muslims, but not only Muslims. And as my future work is going to sort of think through um, other communities as well, but that we have a lot of different kinds of groups that we're all participating in through the formation of the European project in the formation of questions of education and law and property rights. Uh, and, and they are missing from the mainstream historical narratives. When you, you recently did a, uh, a discussion with uh, Dr. Elidor Vahili, who is from Albania, and he mentioned in his opening comments that um, growing up, he always wondered where are the Albanians in, in the European histories. Um, and we have this sort of uh, mainstream grand narratives that are often excluding uh, Muslim communities from Europe, but also excluding formerly Ottoman societies uh, and the roles that they played in the development of late 19th and 20th century political systems, uh, cultures and ideas. And so I, I wanted to tell a story from, from a different perspective uh, not a state-driven story, but a story that starts from the perspective uh, of Muslims, who Ottoman Muslims, who discovered suddenly that their world was shattered, their political system, their economic systems, uh, political boundaries are redrawn, and start to think through what that story looks like of European nation-building from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And to briefly follow up on something you've just said, what are the political and historiographical or even historical imperatives contained in that effort to erase the Muslim experience from not only Europe-wide 
narratives or European grand narratives, but also Balkan histories. Yeah, so I, you know, and I, I deal with this um, in the introduction and, and the conclusion and also in the first chapter of the book. Uh, in the 19th century, as different European uh, projects and both great powers and also new Balkan states are absorbing Ottoman lands, uh, there was a narrative that went on <laughs> that these that, that Muslim rule was not European uh, and that the Ottomans, uh, that, that they had sort of lost the legitimacy or they did not have legitimate rule over these lands. And that then shapes the way that historiographies developed over the course of the 20th century, um, both in the Anglophone context, but also in various Balkan uh, national language contexts. And, um, and I think that it's, it, 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 leaves out important parts of the story. Some of those are uncomfortable to deal with. Some of them are about trauma and mass violence and expulsion. Um, but other parts of that story, I think, are really interesting about, uh, in, in a more positive, I mean, they're all interesting, but in a more positive light about negotiation and compromise. And I think that uh, those kinds of stories, putting them together, allows us to sort of have a richer picture uh, of how state building happened in areas with Muslims and also how kind of these local Balkan narratives and myths um, were operating in conversation with a larger sort of European imperial and civilizing project. Um, and they were working in tandem. We'll come back to this at the end of our conversation, but just briefly, um, are these tensions that, that you analytically follow through time also present, or do they mark our present political moment, perhaps? <laughs> that is a, a, a controversial question, Vladislav. <laughs> um, indeed, they do. I think we have seen that a lot just in these last few months um, in the ways that uh, different Balkan Muslim societies are being discussed. and. Uh, sort of understood as potentially part of the European Union or not. Um, I think we've also seen over the last few years uh, a real sort of effort to, uh, in Western Europe, to sort of distinguish different kinds of Muslim narratives. And there's this, this narrative that Muslims are new, that they're foreign, that they're immigrants, that they're other, that they are primarily in the recent past should be seen in, in terms of lenses of post-colonialism and guest workers um, and refugees and, and migrants. And, and I think that that kind of narrative of foreignness has actually been around much longer. Uh, it, it, it existed in already the 19th century and it was used to create uh, distinctions between who is European uh, and Muslims were often drawn on the outside of that question. They were seen as not European. Um, and I think we still end up with a lot of that today in a lot of the political rhetoric, uh, in a lot of the ways that you know, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo and Albania are discussed, because these are countries that include significant Muslim societies. Um, and I think that those questions also uh, are politicized by contemporary state Early on, uh, you write that modern Balkan states felt Christian and privileged Christians, even when laws suggested paths for Muslim inclusion. 
how did Balkan Muslims experience um, the imperial crisis and turmoil of, of the 1870s? So I think that there's sort of two things that are going mm-hmm. on in, that, in, in the question that you just asked me. In the 1870s, we have a variety of nationalist movements and a variety of, sort of expansionist uh, movements um, that, are, that are all operating um, sort of with, the, with an agenda to kind of rethink the political boundaries and to rethink sort of political authority in southeastern Europe, right? With, especially in the Ottoman European lands. Um, and, and Muslims were very aware that this, this was going on. We have various kinds of rebellions and, and riots and also political sort of negotiating and discussions uh, about what this is going to look like. And of course, this is part of a longer you know, Ottoman history and a longer history in the 19th century of European powers absorbing Ottoman land or infringing upon Ottoman sovereignty in different ways. Um, and But my interest is really here in how local Muslims responded to this. And uh, and I'm forgetting the second part of your question already, but I wanted to just say, you know, in 1878, when the Congress of Berlin happens, many Muslims are sort of thrown, right? They, they are suddenly told that they are going to be citizens of new states, but these are going to be, you know, not, uh, these are not going to be part, of, they're not going to be part of the Islamic empire anymore. And they find themselves sort of, I, I call it citizenship without consent. Right? They don't, they don't want to leave, but they also don't necessarily want to be citizens um, of these new states. And, and so they have to sort of start to think through, oh, I just remember the second part of the question. They have to start to think through what that's going to look like. Um, and as they do, they, they are given a promise that they will have sort of confessional, what I call confessional sovereignty, that they'll have control over the boundaries of Islam. Uh, but that then comes into conflict with questions of, you know, what a national education is going to look like and what religious education is going to look like and what history books, you know, the narratives that are going to be told. And in those latter things, I argue uh, that we see, you know, a real Christian bias, that it's, uh, you know, those new stories, new narratives, new histories, new cultures, new literatures are being written from a predominantly Christian perspective. Uh, and so the idea of what constitutes sort of Muslim rights uh, is, is, is not so black and white in terms of do they have you know, freedom of press? Do they have liberty? Do they have freedom of religion? Do they have property rights? Uh, because it's also about, you know, do they have the freedom to define you know, what Islam means and, and what its legal uh, and institutional boundaries will look like in these new states? I think this is a good place to get closer to the ground, as it were, and and maybe offer a few examples of of this process. I mean, how did Muslims endeavor to translate their long-standing social practices, discourses, in reference to these modernizing, nationalizing, European, quote-unquote, state-building processes? Uh, What strikes you as the key finding here? Could you also illuminate the process with a number of, of anecdotes or examples from, from the rich uh, archival base that, that the entire work is, is kind of based on. 
Yeah, sure. So one of my favorite stories uh, is where we have in, uh, I think it's in 1902, there's a conference going on in Austria-Hungary about the future of Islamic education and the boundaries of Islamic institutions. And you have this meeting between prominent muftis who are religious uh, legal experts in Islam and local Habsburg politicians and uh, administrators. And they're going back and forth and they're talking about sort of what the curriculum choices are going to mean. Um, and finally, one of the, this, this sort of main mufti says, um, well, we, you know, we will ab- abide by, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he essentially says, we will abide by all of your laws as long as they don't conflict with Sharia law. But if they should conflict with Sharia law, then we don't agree to your laws. And, um, and I found that really fascinating because they didn't quite know what to do. The Habsburgs didn't quite know what to do with it. And so we do find cases where they do defer to, uh, to Islamic leaders, Muslim leaders, and Islamic legal traditions. And we find the same thing, for example, in Montenegro. At one point, you know, they, there's a dispute that goes on between a civil judge and, a, uh, and, a, and an Islamic judge over sort of what is going to, you know, who has control over certain kinds of legal questions. And ultimately, the Ministry of Justice comes down and says, you know, our laws are, are, can't, you know, can't conflict. And where they do, we need to, uh, you know, follow through and give uh, our Muslim citizens, you know, some control over that. Um, and so there's these moments where there's some pushback and some negotiation and uh, over, especially in the legal realm, which is, as you know, something I'm, I'm really fascinated by. Um, I'm trying to think of other sort of examples of, of where we find sort of specific layers of negotiation. Um, I imagine you have some ideas or examples from the anecdotes that you are thinking of in particular. I mean, Certainly, and and I'm now currently working in Montenegrin archives, and and I mean the source base is is rich with with similar similar examples. And but I like to comment or or ask a question about your method. Um, you're keenly aware of, of Muslims' agency, um, and could you just elaborate a bit on on what agency historical agency means for you and, and its place in, in in this project? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I. The way I think about agency is uh, control over um, defining questions and defining answers. Uh, and, and at different points in time, uh, Muslims did not always have control over one or the other. But I try to look at uh, where we, we can find examples uh, of either or if we can't find both. I think we often think about historical agency um, as sort of a direct link from action to results. Um, and, and what I'm more interested in here is sort of one or the other, um, if I can't find both. All right, so how, for example, um, in 1919, uh, 1920, the international system, the great powers have been talking about, they introduced this new rip- rhetoric of minority rights, and they uh, began to discuss how different minorities might be uh, given rights within new nation states after the collapse of empire, uh, and and what that would look like. And we, through the Paris Peace Treaties, we see them 
uh, you know, thinking through for specific kinds of minorities. You know, what are Poles going, you know, in Poland are, you know, German speakers going to have certain kinds of rights? In Hungary or, or in Romania, you know, are the Romanian or the Hungarians going to have certain rights? In Yugoslavia, what are the rights going to be of Hungarians or Italian speakers? Um, and here we find you know, Muslims are not part of this conversation in the same way that other national and linguistic minorities are. But where I find agency is that they try to do so. And they take these concepts of minority and rights. And we find local resolutions all across Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also in southern Serbia, in the area of Sanjak and Kosovo, where lots of different local communities come together and they start to define what do they see as core rights of being a Muslim? What do they want? And whereas other minority groups seek the right to have schools in their language or the rights to publish newspapers in their languages. What we find Muslims, um, sort of the majority of Muslim elites seeking are uh, the right for to continue to have um, a Sharia legal tradition and a Sharia judiciary. And also they're looking for property rights. Uh, and these other kinds of rights, liberty or I know, freedom of uh, the press, are just not, you know, freedom of voting, right, voting rights, these are not at the forefront of their minds. And so they redefine the conversation, and this is where I see agency. They redefine the conversation in a way that speaks to them and their desires, and they, and they actually win something. They use political negotiation, and they win, and in 1921, uh, the first constitution of Yugoslavia enshrines Sharia law or Sharia, a Sharia judiciary, and all Muslims are required to abide uh, by or, or follow and, and adjudicate matters through the Sharia judiciary. And so there's an example of sort of what I see uh, as, as agency. Mm-hmm. A wonderful example just occurs to me a few days ago in Tetany in Archives. I, I stumbled upon a, an interesting report from Podgorica in 1978. Uh, Podgorica was conquered or liberated by the Montenegrin armies uh, uh, just before. And, and the Muslim population there was preparing to leave, uh, pack up and, and just go, even though they had um, existed and, and inhabited that territory for, for centuries. And some of them actually decided to stay having negotiated a military service exemption. Uh, so this is the Ottoman system uh, inverse, completely upside down. In, in the Ottoman system, the Raya had been paying this uh, jizya uh, tax for not serving in the army. And now the Muslims got to stay, uh, control their property, uh, and, not, and not serve in the army, which might have led them to fight against other Muslims. Um, so they were paying an additional tax, I guess, called Nizamiya. Uh, based on the Ottoman word for the army Nizam, um, and and they just stayed there. Not all of them. Some some moved along with the border. As the border moved, they also moved. Uh, but I, this is a wonderful case of a successful negotiation, I guess, from the Muslim perspective, at least. Yeah, and I think what you start to see also are you know people who do things like in the 18, you know, early 1880s uh, move one member of the family across the border to Skadar, right, to try to protect property. But we also see cases in Ultin, uh, in the south, um, on the coast, of you know Muslims moving back actually and negotiating, uh, you know, a, sort of a return, right, even those who had. You know, fled or left, trying to return to their homes. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, I think most, for the most, in the most, most Muslims leave um, after after these border changes, uh, either you know through expulsions or sort of coercive <laughs> coercive migration. Um, but we do absolutely have cases of people who negotiate and who stay and who who thrive and who are able to maintain businesses and you know lively lives and homes and and who are part of 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 those new countries. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yes, and to be fair, the limits of, of this agency are made by the Montenegrin state, and, and Muslims have to accommodate the, the context that already exists. Uh, but but th- there is some leeway, there's some room for, for maneuver still, and the Montenegrin state does not really mind Muslims staying as long as they conform to what the Montenegrins thought citizenship meant. And, and this had to do with public education as well. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about public education, the role of Islamic law and, and these state-building processes in, in this period? This is the late 19th century. Yeah, so, I mean, just to continue what you were saying also in terms of the Montenegrin state gets to define the limits of agency, you know, that's absolutely true. And you have the same thing in Serbia, you have the same thing in Austria-Hungary, and then after 1918, you have the same thing in um, Yugoslavia. And Natasha Wheatley has written a bit about how only through uh, consenting to the new system, only it is only by saying, I agree to the new political boundaries and will work within them, are do marginalized communities get rights? And that, that process begins after 1878. Those communities who want to fight or you know, want the restoration of the Ottoman Empire, those groups that become armed insurgents uh, who, who leave and then sort of are fighting on the other side of the border, they're not given rights. They, 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 don't, they don't get a choice. Um, and, that, and that's sort of a tension, I think, at the late 19th century. And when we talk about agency, it's, it's really important to remember that only those who are operating within the predetermined boundaries of sort of what the, the state has, the new state has decided they can, you know, what they can argue for um, are even able to, to do so. Um, public education is really fascinating because you know, in, in the educational systems, they are not fully secular. Religious education is part of public education in, in Southeastern Europe in every country in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, even through the middle of the 20th century. Um, and even when it's not explicitly you know, learning about 
theology, uh, there's a lot of religious ethics were built into questions of national morality uh, and sort of the ways that civics and uh, literature were were understood and being taught. Um, this posed a conflict for Muslims because they had religious freedom, and so. There, you know, different groups of Muslims would argue that they should have the freedom to teach you know, for their children not to be in these contexts uh, proselytized or Christianized, as as they often saw it, um, and and also that that the state should fund aspects of Islamic education. If there's going to be religious education, then shouldn't it include all religions in the state. And there's different compromises that are made. These are often made at the local level. Um, at some point in Podgorica, where you are right now, there was a, a Muslim school that existed. And there was, I, I write about it, there was a conflict over how it would operate and who had control over the funding. And did the state, you know, if, if it was being, if the curriculum was being governed by local Muslims, did the state have to pay for the teachers, for example? And there's also conflicts then in different places at different points uh, over what is being taught and, and are the schools politically teaching, you know, te- are, are they imposing an anti-Montenegrin or an anti-Serbian or an anti-Yugoslav agenda? And those accusations come through as well. And, and this is especially the case when the primary language of a school or of a classroom was not uh, a South Slavic language in, in Montenegro or Serbia or even in Austria-Hungary. This tells us a lot about the, the social role that the school played in, in these nationalizing or nationalist even uh, propaganda projects or, or state-building projects. Uh, Montenegrin, Serbian, Greek, Bulgarian elites are well aware how they had used schools uh, prior to the Congress of Berlin within the Ottoman imperial system. These were platforms for the diffusion and, 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 and of nationalist ideas. Of, of So I guess they've learned their lesson and they were not willing to, to let the other side use the schools as they had done before. <laughs> that is a great point, yes. <laughs> um, fast forward into the 20th century, um, after a decade of material and human destruction, uh, the early 1920s, as you've already mentioned, presented a chance to rebuild the interstate order in Eastern Europe and and beyond. Uh, What were the main opportunities and dangers that the turbulent interwar years offered to Muslim communities across the the region who now lived in in the first Yugoslav state? So uh, the first Yugoslav state, uh, as I mentioned earlier, early on it started to formulate an idea of Muslim as a distinct kind of legal minority within the state. And by classifying Muslims in le- primarily in, in legal terms early on, uh, it created a system where legal institutions, legal education, um, and various kinds of Islamic institutions that sort of fit within that rubric, um, like madrasas, uh, were operating kind of as uh, institutions also of nation building. So there was a tension that was built into this process where on the one hand, Muslims were given the rights to have institutions to control them, they had funding for them. But on the other hand, uh, 
Um, the state recognized that essential way of nation building, coming back to your point before about schools, right, was through these institutions. And so there was this constant push and pull between uh, giving Muslims authority and control over their own institutions and sort of subverting that authority and exploiting these institutions for distinct nation building goals. And that throws me back to the 18, 1880s. Uh, there's another interesting case in Ulcin, a, a coastal town in Montenegro that you'd mentioned, um, in which the Ottoman consul in, in Montenegro tries to insert some sort of influence over, over uh, Sharia Uprava, the, the, the local Sharia authority in Ulcin, and the Montenegrin state authorities react forcefully by saying that the local Qadi is a state official. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that he, even though he performs these, let's say, uh, age-old functions, he is himself based within the state apparatus. And I guess that there's a, a long trajectory going into the 20th century. So not much changes, I guess, in the 1920s. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. In the 20, I mean, in within the Yugoslav system, there is an official Islamic inst, you know, institutional system. There's, it's actually called the Islamic Religious Community, and you know, the government is able to fund schools. It's able to pay teacher salaries. It's able to decide, you know, enforce certain curriculum laws, um, and this actually creates a sort of schism within the Muslim community itself over sort of who among Muslim leaders uh, should have control over defining that agenda. Uh, And we have different groups who are reformists, who are seeking kind of control and and looking toward either Kamalist Turkey uh, or other forms of uh, slightly more secular, what we might consider secularizing trends of the 1920s and 30s. Um, And then there's other groups that are uh, what we can see as more traditionalist or conservative or what becomes known as the Islamic revivalist movement in the 1930s, especially in Yugoslavia, um, that are seeking kind of a, a different path and actually become kind of opposed to the formal institutions of the state. Uh, and we have this back and forth that I that I discussed, you know, between the leadership within the Islamic religious community in different regions, tensions between regions, tensions locally, tensions between different kinds of of fields of thought over the best relationship between religious institutions and the state project. Does this or did this help you challenge the conventional monolithic view that, that People in isn't the educated public, the general readership usually have about Islam as 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 a monolith, as a monumental body of practice and and thought. Um, all these regional and local uh, differences and, and diversity in in the Balkans. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we probably should have started here at the beginning of the interview, um, but you know, the the Muslim communities that I that I study, and they speak many different languages. They speak Albanian, they speak Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. Some speak Bulgarian. They speak Romani, Turkish. There's a few communities of Tatar, but they also read in different languages: Arabic, Ottoman, Turkish, German, French. Um, and and they practice Islam differently. They have different customs and cultures. Um, there's 
Muslims who are Sunni Muslims who are following the Hanafi school of Islam, and there are Sufi uh, traditions that are widespread. Um, and in in the interwar period, I mean, this is one of the great challenges: is that the whole system of European minorities—it's not just in Yugoslavia, it's not just Muslims—but the whole system of European minorities is set up in a way to encourage homogeneity. Right. And often the homogeneity is encouraged around national or linguistic lines. Um, but in the case of Muslims in Yugoslavia, it, it became a question of sort of homogeneity of practice and homogeneity of thought. And so you end up with rifts within different communities. Um, you have tensions between uh, for example, groups of sort of more scripturalist Sunni Muslims uh, become very hostile toward different form Sufi practices and um, syncretic traditions. Um, and actually, in 1931, they have you know there's an initiative to shut down the the, the brother Sufi Brotherhood lodges known as Teket, right? And that initiative isn't coming from the state; it's coming from within the Muslim you know a different section of of Muslim the Muslim community. Um, likewise, we have tensions, you know, where where different groups are opposed to Albanian Muslims and trying to kind of adopt the kind of Yugoslav national idea um, and nationalize those those communities. But at the flip side, we also see um, moments of real solidarity. So in the late 1930s, there's discussion in, in Belgrade and Yugoslavia about um, to forcefully deporting. Uh, Albanian-speaking Muslims, and, and they, they talk about this compact mass on the border with Albania. And, uh, they even, you know, map out when this should happen, and it should happen in the summer months or the winter months, and how many people could fit in a train, and they you know, start some uh, financial negotiations with the Turkish government. Um, and when that happens, you know, and there's others who have, have written about this as, as well, but when that happens, what I find really interesting for, for the story I'm telling is that you know, many Slavic-speaking Muslims suddenly are like, whoa, if this could happen to one set of people within our community, you know, where is this going? Uh, and, and so they, Raisul Rulema, who's the leader of the Islamic religious community, he travels to Sanjak and he travels around and says, you know, you're not going anywhere. This is your homeland. This is our homeland. We have to sort of have a, have a moment of solidarity. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is important, that it's the story is not, you know, cut and dry. And there's, you know, the I want to both challenge this monolithic view of Islam. You know, it's really dynamic and diverse um, and also the monolithic view that, you know, Muslim politics is always looks the same. Right. Or, or Muslim kind of solidarity looks the same. It, it ebbs and flows in response to various local, regional, and international political moments. And we see that um, in the case of Yugoslavia, really, you know, it just brings it to the forefront. And on the other analytical poll, you also question the omnipotence of, of a state, a modern state, which tends to or is eager to count people, control a territory, uh, be the key social actor at the apex of the social order, uh, but a lot of these policies fail or they backfire or they have to be renegotiated. I mean, when you mentioned this uh, expulsion or, or it's actually a transfer policy that was deliberated on in Belgrade in the 1930s, 
Ivo Andrić, the, the only Nobel Prize winner from the region, was then at the foreign ministry in Belgrade, and he was in charge of drafting a memorandum on, 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 on this issue. Uh, but this policy never, never came to fruition. So it shows us that, that this, this dynamic relationship between the state and different aspects of the society, however marginalized they may be, is not straightforward. This is a two-way street, and, and there's unintended consequences, as, as always, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think, I mean, I think you could interwar Yugoslavia is not a particularly strong state. And, and one of the reasons why when I first started writing this project, I, you know, I was trained as a 20th century historian, and I imagined it was going to be a, you know, a book about 1918, you know, to the early communist period, 1949 or so. Um, and that was sort of where I began it. But You know, what, what it occurred to me was that the comparative aspect, understanding how similar questions operated in different states at different moments that were stronger or weaker, such as Montenegro and Serbia and Austria-Hungary in the you know, 1878 to 1918-1919 you know, period was, was really critical. Because I, I think we have this idea that... Um, we, I think we have two ideas about a lot of this state building. One was that it was, you know, Top down and kind of always nationalizing, um, and and that the other was that there you know wasn't um, kind of as much debate locally or in different regions. And I mean the story of interwar Yugoslavia is usually broken down into national ones, and Serbs and Croats are sort of the two main players. Uh, but there were lots and lots of people who were not Serb and not Croat, and they were also part of this process. And when you start getting into the local archives and narratives, you start to see some more of that nuance and the ways that state building was also a, a really local endeavor. This is a, a finding or a methodological insight that um that really kind of took from 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 the book. And and all states want us to believe that they are, as I said, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, strong. Uh, but we actually, when when you're in the archives, you see that these local agendas at times have nothing to do with with these top-down projects and, and that these communication corridors between the local, the marginalized, the uh, places in the borderlands, both geographically but also uh, intellectually, are, are, are clogged at times. And, and interesting to, to, to note. Um, Throughout the book, you build convincing interpretive bridges between the local and the global, which kind of continues on or, or uh, links with what we've discussed now. Would you care to elaborate on the ways in which Balkan Muslims mobilized and navigated that horrific clash of modern ideologies kind of that reached its climax in the Second World War? Think of fascism, communism in, in, in the first instance. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a good question. Yeah, um, indeed, I'm trying to constantly negotiate between the local and the global, and I do that in the 19th century and the ways that you know, early moments of uh, becoming absorbed by new states uh, are how Muslims are looking toward both sort of what's happening locally, but also looking at you know reading things that are going on in Egypt and, and reading. Uh, and, and looking towards Istanbul and the Ottoman sort of intellectual trajectory. And then in the early 1920s, we see kind of with the 
end of the Ottoman Empire and the abolition of the caliphate, again, we have this sort of international moment that will you know, reverberate locally. What does that mean? What does it mean to be part of a Muslim community if, you know, in this new shifting era? Um, and I draw a lot here on sort of the work by Jamil Aydin. As we get into the 1930s and the 1940s, um, the, the, the big questions that are you know, the three sort of main driving ideological factors uh, are fascism, communism, uh, and uh, uh, political Islam. And these are happening across Europe and different groups of um, Muslims in, in Yugoslavia are attracted to different sort of ideological poles. And I argue throughout through the last part of the book that understanding right, the alliances and collaborations and support that different groups of Muslims might have for one over the other of these groups uh, needs to be understood based on their long local trajectories. Uh, it's based on who could be trusted. It's also based on what different groups were promising. Right? The, you know, the fascists, both the Nazi Germany, but also fascist Italy, which occupied different parts of the Balkans during World War II, you know, they come in and they promise a sort of confessional sovereignty. They promise that Muslims are going to be able to have control over Islam, um, and in exchange, they seek sort of pragmatic alliance. Right? The communists come in and they promise brotherhood and equality, and they also promise religious freedom, which is really huge for a lot of people that initially support them. And I talk about how once when once the communists are back, pedal back on religious freedom, they, they lose a lot of Muslim support in 1946 and 1947 because it was one of the central features of the propaganda early on to recruit people. Um, and, and this notion of socialist brotherhood is appealing to a lot of Muslims who were sidelined by nation states and felt like since the very beginning, since 1878, they had just been marginalized and experienced widespread discrimination. Um, but then the third part of that, that you know, is often not sort of in our European narratives of right, these ideological divisions is that there's also a sort of important and strong political Islamic movement that is trying to challenge sort of both of these ideas and also nationalism uh, and draws upon other kinds of global discussions, things that are going on in Egypt and, and in the Middle East uh, and, and looking toward uh, kind of how does one create a meaningful Islamic presence in a European society and, and a society that can be guided by Islamic values and morals. And what is the outcome of, of Islam's interaction with post-war Yugoslav socialism and, and state rebuilding, as it were? So there's a conflict, a, uh, and the conflict for, yeah, begins really in 1946 and ends in 1949, which is where I end the book. Uh, the conflict has armed components. There's rebel groups or with, with the communists called bandits, um, and it's also got you know an intellectual component. Uh, there's underground schools and madrasas and radios, uh, and so you have a real Muslim resistance to communism, and the communists you know systematically and 
very effectively um, shut things down uh, step by step. So they'd be, they're, they're very cagey. They don't immediately, for example, they don't come in and immediately shut down all of the Islamic schools. Right? Then they, they discuss, and I found in local Communist Party reports where the communists say, we got to keep these open because it's our main way of getting to these kids. Um, and if we can just sort of keep things going, then we can utilize these institutions to um, connect and, and make headway to, to sort of ultimately change the way people are thinking. And the communists, they think early on that once people have you know, food and shelter and they can see the benefits of communist modernity and the modernization, that they are going to uh, want to participate in this movement. But they underestimate sort of the long legacy and, and traditions of Islam in the region and underestimate sort of the religious circles and communities. Um, and ultimately, the, they begin just a mass campaign of arrests and they execute uh, some many important Muslim leaders to try to sever uh, the connections between Muslim masses and their traditional religious elite. This is this is where the book ends chronologically. Um, one last big question: uh, What has this and this kind of ties nicely with what we've discussed at the very beginning of of the interview? What has this project taught you about the nature of citizenship? Because this is a leitmotif of the entire project. Can Muslims be citizens of predominantly Christian modern states? You have asked me some very difficult questions. <laughs> um, what it has taught me about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip your question around. What it's taught me about citizenship is that it does not always mean what we think it means. I think that we, you know, especially here in, you know, in the U.S. context, we have this sense of citizenship as um, as being a neutral idea, right? And we don't often think about, you know, who's defined the terms of citizenship, what they mean, and who is sort of being left out uh, of that conversation of how we define it in the first place. Um, and I think that, you know, the tensions that we see from 1878 through the late 1940s, where Muslims are are arguing and trying to get us, you know, a seat at the table. Right? They're they're constantly the ways that they are seeking a role in defining citizenship are, um, you know, they are. I don't know how to put this. Um, they are distinct from the traditions of sort of what we presume to be the traditions of liberal European citizenship. But that does not mean that they are not European, and that does not mean that they can't be part of the citizenship project. The United Nations didn't define what is religious freedom, I think, until it was 1966. I have the exact date in the book, so I, I got that wrong. Um, I apologize. Right. But so these ideas, from our perspective now, it seems like that was a very straightforward trajectory, and we have a sense of what these things mean. But at the, you know, in the moment, there was a lot of fluidity about what is religious freedom and you know, who gets to define and control it and what is the relationship of religion and education and how should that, you know, what should that look like? And even what is the relationship of you know, religion and the nation? I mean, at many different moments, you know, being a Muslim Serb or a Muslim Croat was 
you know, part of one's identity. And, and being Croat did not mean being Catholic, and being Serb did not mean being Orthodox. And then in other moments, those kind of ideas changed, right? And so I think that the projects taught me that citizenship needs to be kind of dissected and understood as a sort of long, convoluted legal negotiation between different constituent members. Um, and you know, when people are left out, it's not that they are left out of the project because they didn't belong there in the first place, but they're left out because the project was defined and created in a way that silenced their voices. Like in, in so many other modern political projects, there's there's a violent side, and there's an emancipatory or or liberating side to citizenship. And 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 you conclude the book by saying that Muslims' civil, political, and religious rights were there; they were secured in different periods of of the entire chronology that the book covers, but they often came at a price of an inherently discriminatory and, and violent system. So the book has also taught us, I guess, all the readers to seek for for these tensions, uh, these opposing extremes or poles within modern political projects. Would you agree? Yeah, and that, that is where I end the book. And I think that that's still that sort of tension um, continues to exist today. And it exists not just in Southeastern Europe, but also if we look at France or Germany or England, Uh, or Austria, um, I think we we see many in Russia and, and also in the United States. We see sort of these tensions persist, and it's I think it it's it, what I'm trying to do in the conclusion is ask people to think about you know what are the presumptions we're coming in with, and what are we expecting other people to give up and to sacrifice um, and to kind of just you know suffer through in order to be part of, of a project that, that they are not being asked, what is that project? What should it, that project look like? Fascinating. Um, ultimately, where has this project taken you? Uh, what's next out of your workshop? So I, as, you know, as we began, I said there, each book that you finish, there's always these lingering questions. The questions I have now are really about the 19th century and Um, sort of the beginning point of, of this book um, and whether that actually is the beginning of the story I wanted to tell. Um, at, at a certain point, every book needs to be done and, uh, and this one needed to be finished uh, out, and out in the world. Uh, but now I want to look at sort of how more broadly questions of marginality um, were understood in, in the mid-19th century and how questions of, or, or how different Of groups of peasants and religious confessional minorities, Roma, Jews, Muslims, um, how they began to understand the sort of shifting legal system and different forms of political authority uh, as they moved across the region. So it's, it's still a project in very much in formation, uh, but I, I think I'm looking backwards uh, right now. I'm, I'm dealing with the 19th. Dr. Grabble, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining New Books in History. Thank you so much for having me. Lucky Land 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.